Chapter 35 of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 35 Under the Garden Wall. Not much time could we have together in the land of Goshen, where the boils and plains of the ungodly world are not yet sprinkled in the radiant air. Uncle Corny gave us for our honeymoon one week, which has often proved much longer than the silver cord would stretch. But we, intending all our lives to be of sparkling sweetness, cared very little where we spent the hours, if only with each other. And perhaps we scarcely deserve to be in a place so calmly beautiful, not so far away as to take a cliff of money to get there, and yet having fine brave crags of its own. Perhaps it may be found in ancient charts as Baycliffe, although it is such a quiet homely place, without any railway to advertise it and I have seen some maps which were too good to give the name, but they could not annihilate it by such petty silence, and a pleasant seaside village is like a pleasing woman. The less it is talked about, the more it keeps its charms. For my part, I could not see the need of going back in such hot haste to Sunbury, dearly as I love that desirable village, for here were many things that we could never have there. The level space and leisure of the many-colored sea, the majesty of cliffs, white-browed with centuries of tempest, the gliding of white sails across the gleaming ruffle of the cove, and the crisp, elastic sands that kept the fairy trace of Kitty's feet close to my great clumsy prince. Let us steal another week, I said. It is but a fleeting holiday, and we shall never know such a time again. But my beloved, growing dearer every day, if that could be, gave good advice against her own delight that we should not begin our married life with selfishness. We had been so kindly treated that we must not slur our gratitude and forget our duties and our joys. And I want to see our little home, she said to make the best of it, the house that is to be all our own, where I shall keep you in order, Kit, and make you as happy as the day is long. So with many a backward glance we left that bower of bliss and returned to the world of work and action. And when we found what had been done to welcome and to please us, we could not help confessing that our virtue was well rewarded. For Honeysuckle Cottage looked as bright and fresh as sunrise, and the first half of May is not the time to find much fault with nature. The earth was damp and clammy yet, in places where the wind and sun could not get fairly into it, and the spring was late and shivered still among the gaps it had to stop for one might look through a big tree yet and see a lamp in the road beyond it, and many of those that were being scarfed wore spangles rather than patents, and people who pay little heed might stop in doubt, if they stopped at all, and wonder if what they saw coming might prove in the end to be a blossom or a leaf. In our little house I had the bud, the blossom, and the fruit combined. The bud of youth scarce come to prime, the blossom of fair womanhood, and the fruit of sweet and golden peace, not sleepy but sprightly flavored. It was a fair view from the window, but inside ten times as fair, without the chance of adverse weather nipping hope and bright content. An ancient writer, whom I had just been scholar enough to understand when he was easy in his native tongue, assures us that this perfect state is never long allowed by heaven. According to him and others whom he considers wiser than himself, all the powers that govern man are stung with envy when they see him happier than he ought to be. Generally they take good care to have no occasion for this grudge, but when, by any slip of theirs, 
A mortal has attained such pitch of comfort and prosperity. There is no peace in Olympus till this robber of delight is crushed, and the more he has flourished and rejoiced, the deeper shall his misery be. Having only thirty shillings a week without counting our presents which had been put by, and paying five and sixpence out of that for the rent and rates of our small paradise, we scarcely can have affronted heaven by any gorgeous insolence. And without daring to impugn the wisdom of true philosophers, I venture still to hold by that which we find in larger and nobler writ, that when the heavenly power stoops to cut off our brief happiness, it is to make it more abiding where there is no brevity. But we did not think of such things then, and who would be sad enough to say that we were bound to do so? Care would come quite soon enough, we did not care to beckon him. He must have been a doleful white, and born with black crape around his eyes, who could have looked at my merry kitty without catching her bright smile. In the morning when I went to work I carried it with me like a charm, and whenever I came back at night it put my memory to the blush. For we had settled with one accord, that until I had overtaken the large arrears of work which had lapsed behind through my long illness and absence, there should be no time lost by any return for early dinner. And this was better for my wife, too, inasmuch as she had only Polly Tompkins to assist her, the eldest daughter of Celsie Bill, a very clean and tidy girl, but of small experience in cookery. I was busy at a long peach wall, not the red brick one, but further down, and the trees being large and sadly out of order, patient as well as skillful hands were required urgently. There was a very fine crop yet unthinned, feeble wood to be removed, robber shoots to be docked or tamed, green fly to be dipped or dusted, and all the other crying needs of neglected trees to be made good. And Kitty used to appear exactly as the old church clock struck one, with a basket of bread and meat, a pint of ale, and a pipe filled by her own fair hands which she used to light for me, and then trip home, singing merrily among the trees to see to the business of the afternoon. Dare anybody tell me that a wife like this would leave her dear husband of her own accord, without a word, without a letter, leave him to wonder and mourn and rage and despair of his own life and hers, yet this is what all the world believed and impressed upon me till my spirit failed. Now this is all very fine, exclaimed my uncle as he came round the corner of the wall one day and caught me in the very act of hugging Kitty as she was preparing to light my pipe. She was looking up and laughing and pretending to pull my hair when the deepening of her blush showed that an enemy was nigh. This is all very fine, but how long will it last? How many quarrels have you had already? I suppose you are making up one of them now. Uncle Corny, you are a disgrace, cried Kitty a disgrace to the name of humanity. Mayn't I even whisper in my husband's ear without being accused of quarrelling? We have never had a single word, have we, Kit? Then perhaps you will now. Here's a telegram for you. I was going to send Kit home with it, but as you are so uncommonly close together, why, it saves the trouble. Hope some of your enemies are dead, my dear. Hush, don't be so wicked, she said as she handed it to me and I opened it with my pruning knife and held it for her to read first, but this required our united efforts, for it was badly written, as so often happens, and some of the words were run together. At last we made it out as follows. Spoke all kites off Sicily May 7th. Captain Fairshort desires love and best wishes to his daughter. Will be away two years, perhaps, 
from Jenkins, S.S. Hibernia, Falmouth. All kites? said my uncle, who had read some of the Gregorics as rendered by Dryden with lofty looseness, but never a line of Horace. What a name for a ship, if it is a ship. Kitty, my dear, is that the proper word? No, Uncle Corney, it should be Archytas. I am not sure who he was, but rather think that he must have been a king of Sparta. I know who he was, I said, to show how much I had learned at Hampton, though I never was much of a hand at Horace, and had only found this out in the dictionary. A great man of science who measured the seas, and the sand, and all that, but could not get to heaven because nobody would throw a pinch of dust upon his body, and he lay upon the shore imploring somebody to do it. If he could call out, he could have done it for himself, replied my uncle, who was not poetical. Serve him right, at any rate, for having such a name. But I hope that your father won't do that, my dear. I think it was very kind of him, when he could not help going, and was far away at sea, to get this kind captain of a ship they met, if we understand it properly, to send me this farewell message from the deep. And it makes my mind ever so much more comfortable, because I shall have another message by and by, I dare say. If he meets one ship, he must meet others, and I shall always have a good idea where he is, and have my mind relieved when there has been a stormy night. Thank you, Uncle Corney. You have brought me pleasant news. Kit, it is high time for you to go on with your wall. In this sort of way, by making the best of everything and thanking everybody, even if they did not mean to do her any good, she established in a week a sweet dominion, not over us, but within us. My uncle, though he liked to have his little cut at her, for old men treat young ladies as chicks to be carved, got into the habit of coming up every night of his life to have his pipe at Honeysuckle Cottage. It may seem very ungrateful of me, and I now feel ashamed when I think of it, but after being hard at work all day and having a bit of cold duck under the wall, I thought that I might have been allowed when I came home to tell my dear wife all my thoughts about her, and how many times I had hammered my thumbnail through that. But there Uncle Corney sat, carrying on as if I had cut off my tongue with my pruning knife. Kitty used to laugh and ask me who was jealous now, but I answered with good reason that the case was widely different. Miss Sally Chalker never crossed her legs and sat with a long pipe blowing over a supper-table, Neither did she go on talking as if I were nobody, but rather put me foremost, even when Kitty herself was present, and asked what my opinion was before she gave her own almost. However, I made the best of my uncle's conduct at our cottage, for it was not only my duty, but my important interest to do so. What was to become of us if Uncle Corney, who might be called a huffy man and stuck to a huff whenever he contracted it, should take it into his head that I was not what he used to take me for, I know that he was full of truth and justice according to his own view of them, but if anything went against his liking, so did truth and justice. So I had to sink my opinions often, even when they agreed with his, for he never liked to have them put into any other language than his own. Kitty was clever enough to see this, and she always praised me afterwards. But it went against one's sense of right, that she might say exactly what I had said, and from her lips it became true wisdom, when it had been simple silliness from mine. But Kitty smiled at him and laughed at me, and went into his heart more deeply every time she filled his pipe. Then a new anxiety arose, and Uncle Corney had more than he could do to lay down the law for his own affairs. 
The wind went into the east, with a hard blue sky and not a cloud in it. We had passed the date of the icy saints, as they are called in Germany, when a cold wave of air is said to flow over hundreds of leagues of smiling land and smite it all into one dark frown. If I can remember, without an almanac, that date is about the 7th of May, but I have never found it quite so punctual here, and according to my observation the bloom of England hovers in nightly peril from the middle of April to the very end of May. It is one of the many sad things we meet, but can only hold our hands and watch, that for nearly six weeks of the year, and in early seasons even more, through all our level southern lands, the fruit crop trembles on the hazard of a single night's caprice. The bright sun and the lovely day delude the folk who know no better. These are the very things that lead to the starry night and the quiet cold, and the white sheet over the grass at 5 a.m., and the black death following. The barren grower walks between his rows of wounded blossom, and there is little harm to be seen at first. Some of the petals are as fair as ever. Others are just tipped with brown, and perhaps his wife runs up and says, Oh, you need not be in a fright, my dear. Why, they all look as well as ever. But he, with deeper wisdom and the smile of prophetic silence, pulls out his budding knife and nips the fairest truss he can find of bloom. Then he lays it in his palm, and haply with keen edge bisects the pips. A keener edge has been there before him. A little black line passes up from the baby stalk to the pistol. The ovary is dead and shrunken, though the anthers still may be tipped with pink. Never shall a fruit grow there, to swell and stripe itself with sun, to flood a plate with sprightly juice, and in its dissolution hear some sweet voice say, Oh, I never did taste such a lovely pear. All these horrors threaten now, in spite of the lateness of the spring. In a forward spring they more than threaten, they come down and smash everything. But being now so late, we began to have some confidence, misplaced as it might be, in the meaning of the sky. And now for the wind to go back to the east, after living there so many months that it ought to be downright sick of it, and the sun to go down red and clear, like a well-grown turnip radish, and the stars to come out small and sharp like a lot of glazier's diamonds, and the mercury in the thermometer to drop, as if the bulb had been tapped about six o'clock, and scarcely a breath of wind to stir the fans of radiation. It was more than enough to make any grower fetch a groan at the day when himself was grown. But my uncle was not of the groaning order, neither did he even hang himself, as one of our very best neighbors did, when he saw his thermometer at twenty-two degrees one radiant May morning. But his wife, who could enter into his feelings, cut him down with a gooseberry knife, and enabled him to grow out of it, my uncle used to read the gardening papers, which always bloom with fine advice, and one of them had lately been telling largely how, in continental vineyards, these cold freaks of heaven are met by the sacrificial smoke of earth. To wit, a hundred pyres are raised of rankings in the refuse of the long vine alleys and ready for kindling on the frosty verge. Then a wisp of lighted straw is applied to each when the sparkling shafts of frost impend and a genial smoke is wafted through, and Sagittarius has his eyes obscured. I told my uncle that this was rubbish, at least as regarded our level lands, though it might be of service upon a hillside. 
that if there were wind enough to spread the smoke, there must also be enough to prevent the hoar-frost, which alone need be feared at this season. But he told me to stick to what I understood, for these scientific things were beyond me, and my business was to tend the fires. In spite of all his brave talk, he was afraid of casting a slur upon his old experience by a new experiment. For the British workman disdains new ideas, and there was not a man upon our place, but would say that the governor was turned cranky if he got any inkling of this strange scheme. "'I shall have all the stuff put there,' said Uncle Corney, "'ready for lighting when they are gone. Those thickheads will never suspect that I want to do anything more than burn up the weeds as we generally do at this time of year. Then, as soon as we see the danger coming, you and I will go out and attend to it, my boy.' Not that I place any great faith in it, although it seems very sensible to those who understand the principles, which young fellows cannot be supposed to do. At any rate, I mean to try it. It can do no harm if it does no good. You need not say another word, but just do what I tell you. I wasn't born yesterday, as you ought to know by this time. I knew that well, for it takes many years to root a man into such obstinacy, As a rule, I was much more inclined to give fair trial to anything new than he was, and much more ready to risk money on it. But this would cost nothing, except a little work, and that I could not grudge him. So I told my dear wife not to be uneasy if I did not come home till after dark some night, for our doings depended, of course, upon the weather, and the quarter of young pear trees which my uncle meant to smoke was the furthest part almost of all the premises from Honeysuckle Cottage. Kitty smiled and said she would come down and see it, and roast a potato or two for our supper, and we would go home together, when the work was done, and make Uncle Corney come with us. Alas, how differently it all turned out. End of chapter 35